Let's read from the book of Amos, chapter 6. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion, and trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came. Pass ye unto Calneh, and see, and from thence go ye to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms, or their border greater than your border? I spoke recently in this general area from the first part of this text, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion, dealing primarily with several other portions of scriptures that call upon God's people to awaken in a time of indifference and slumber. But I'm taking this text tonight for the purpose of trying to look more explicitly at what is said right here in this passage relating to this theme. And not only in the immediate part of chapter 6, but throughout this book of Amos. Woe is pronounced upon those that are at ease in Zion. Now, there is a sense in which it is good to be at ease in Zion if we are resting in the promises of God and being comforted by his gospel and we find rest for our souls and pleasure in spiritual fellowship. But that's obviously not the sense of this text. This is presented in a negative way. This ease is the ease of indifference. This is an attitude of complacency. This is involvement in things that are detrimental to spirituality. A curse is pronounced upon those who are in such a state. Somebody might already question the wisdom of using such a text in a service like this. You say, well, surely people that have come out on a rainy night to be in this meeting are people who are awake and alert spiritually, and they don't need to hear this. There's about 11 or 12 preachers here tonight. Surely they don't need to hear this. But this is a part of God's Word, and all of it is given by inspiration of God, and I think is very needful, and certainly this passage to me is most appropriate in the day in which we're living. For I feel that the conditions that are described here may be observed all about us and no doubt to some degree are experienced in the life of every one of us in our struggles to try to draw closer to the Lord. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. Let's see some of the specific things that are here described as being the condition. Verse 3 says, Ye that put far away the evil day, and cause the seat of violence to come near, that lie upon beds of ivory, and stretch themselves upon their couches, and eat the lambs out of the flock, and the calves out of the midst of the stall, that chant to the sound of the viol, and invent to themselves instruments of music like David that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, 
but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive, and the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. We see then the very signs or indications or descriptions of what it is to be at ease in Zion. Somebody might wonder just how would I know it if I'm guilty of what this text says, if I am at ease in Zion. How may, how may I determine that? How, how may I observe it as far as my own church is concerned? Is it possible for a church to drift into that complacent spirit? We believe it is. How can it be identified? What are the evidences? What are the signs that this has occurred? Well, first of all, the fourth verse indicates that those who are in this state are very much like the church at Laodicea. They are rich. They're, they're increased with goods. These lie upon their beds of ivory, stretch themselves upon their couches. They eat lambs out of the flock, the calves out of the midst of the stall. They feel to have a sufficiency. They have plenty that they might feed upon as far as satisfying their own natural appetite. These were not hungering and thirsting after righteousness, but feeding themselves out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. Any time we individually or as a church reach the place that we feel to be sufficient, we feel to be rich. We feel there's an ample supply. Anything that we need, we, we have it available. We just, if we're hungry, we take the lamb out of the flock and we prepare it for food and we eat it and we eat in abundance. We are, in other words, concentrating upon our own appetite, our own desire, our own interest, and feel rich and increased with goods with an adequacy for that which we may desire. It's important for all of us to be constantly aware of our weakness and our need. The Apostle Paul said, when I am weak, it's then that I'm strong. Nobody likes to admit that they're weak. Nobody enjoys feeling weak. Everybody would far rather get up in the morning and say, I feel great. I can, I can handle the day. I've got strength for whatever comes along. And some of you maybe that suffer from various physical ailments can say, certainly I know what it's like to get up in the morning and feel weak and say, how am I going to make it through this day? And for us to admit to others, I'm weak. I need help is often a very difficult thing to do. Some people that desperately need help. They need the counsel and advice and prayers of God's people, but they'll resist it and put it off until things are in a terrible state of disarray because they don't want to admit, I'm weak, I need help. We as old Baptists like to emphasize that we deal with each other on a level of honesty. We're willing not only to sing songs of joy and triumph, but to sing, I am a stranger here below, and what I am, tis hard to know. I am so vile, so full of sin, 
I fear that I'm not born again. I tell you, there are days that to sing that song in the old tune I to me just suits my state. Some may feel it's uh, too doleful and too dark an experience, but I haven't gotten beyond that in my own struggles. I find myself there many times. And one of the things that was attractive to me when I first began to visit among old Baptists, that here was the people that not only had those experiences, but admitted it. You see, I'd been brought up among a people where it just wasn't the thing to do to admit that you were weak. You had to constantly be convincing yourself and everybody else that you knew beyond any shadow of a doubt just where you stood and that you were capable to handle whatever came along. And so it was a consolation to me to find people talking about their experiences, which were very much like some of my own, and willing to share them and admit them. But it takes grace, really, for us to admit that we are weak. I'm not talking about complaining. You know, anybody can complain. I'm talking about an admission of our need of the grace and strength and blessing of God to hold us up in all that we do. Our need of one another for encouragement, for counsel. We need each other. Churches need each other. See, a church that just pulls in and thinks only about what's going on right there. They don't care anything about having other preachers in. They don't care anything about visitations. just thinking about themselves. You'll see that church begin to suffer after a while. We need each other. But these individuals seemed to be in a state where they, they didn't uh, have much thought about anything that they, they needed. They were self-centered. They felt like they had a sufficiency. That's, that's one of the marks, then, of, of what it is to be at ease in Zion. Verse 6, then, says that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments. They, they indulged themselves. They weren't just drinking a little sup of wine out of a wine glass. They were drinking wine out of bowls. And it wouldn't take too many bowls full for somebody to become intoxicated. So these people were indulging themselves, giving way to their own lust. They were wanting to feel good, you see. They... Drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments. There wasn't any reaching out here. There wasn't any giving. There was a concentration upon, I want what I want. I want to feel good. Give me the chief ointment. You remember that when Jesus was here on the earth, that there was a woman that broke the alabaster box and poured valuable ointment on his feet, and the disciples were critical of that and said, well, why didn't we sell that and give it to the poor? And Jesus indicated she had done a very good thing with it, because she had given that as unto the Savior. Now, my friends, our concern about that which is worthwhile and valuable ought to be in rendering a service unto our Savior Jesus Christ and ministering to those that have need. But these weren't ministering. They said, uh, we want this valuable ointment for ourselves. They anointed themselves. They drank wine in bowls and anointed themselves with the chief ointments. Very self-indulgent. Is that not the spirit and attitude that prevails in society today? People are constantly centering their attention upon what they can get, what they can obtain. They feel like, if I can just get that new car, I'll be so happy. 
And new cars break down just like old cars. And after a while, you get frustrated with it and say, just can't, can't get anything that satisfies anymore. Somebody says, oh, I'm just tired of this old wardrobe. I just picked all these clothes out and not have to see them again and get all new things. I'd be so happy and you get that. And by that time, they've advertised something else on TV. And you say, no, that, that isn't what I need. I need something else. I need this new one over here. I need these bigger things, these better things. And look what the neighbor's got. i got to keep up with him. Saying there's that constant effort out there to get more and get more and get more. And it never does bring inner peace. It never does bring real satisfaction. The only genuine satisfaction and peace that we have is with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we're living in a time when people are caught up so much in this worldly system, and sad to say, it influences multitudes of the Lord's own people. They become far more concerned about making money and gaining social stature and reaching some position of prominence in life than they are about serving God. And even when you are committed to want to serve God, there will be so many other obstacles put in your path. You find it to be constantly difficult to stay on course. I found in, uh, with our children that uh, the school systems, many times, no doubt, with a good motive, meaning well, but they bring up so many activities that it's almost impossible to have the kind of home life and the kind of church life you've got because there's constant interference. And so there's, there's always this struggle to keep our attention directed where it needs to be in the service of God. These individuals then very much given to their, um, to their own interest, uh, very self-indulgent. And then verse 5 said that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. A chant is a repetition. If somebody is chanting, they're saying the same thing over and over again. This speaks to me of the fact that even in religion, a person may be at ease in Zion because what they're doing is done simply as a repetitive act. They've done the same thing over and over again, but it's become a ritual. It's a mere formality. There is no spirit in it. It's not motivated from love. It's not because they're genuinely wanting to serve God. It's just a formality. It's just the same old thing. It's just a chant. It's just a chant. Now, we as old Baptists can see very clearly the emptiness of some of the rituals around us in the religious world. In fact, we look at some of them and say, how can people be so intrigued and so impressed by those rituals? How can people even enjoy that kind of ceremony? Because we've never been used to that. We've always come in a very simple form of worship and say, that doesn't appeal to me at all. Now, to somebody that's been brought up in these other things, it's very appealing. That's what they've known, and that's quite interesting, and that's quite attractive. And we can see all their faults, but we have a little more difficulty seeing our own. Do you know that right in the simple order of worship that's carried out in an old Baptist church, we can also become ritualistic? As a matter of fact, 
If you try just to change something a little bit sometimes, you'll see just how everybody is used to that chant, that same old way of doing everything. You watch sometimes after you have sung for 30 minutes, if you decide to sing for 15 more, people go looking at their watches, they get restless, you know. It's time to change the order of service, brother. We can't sing anymore. 30 minutes is up. Or if you only sang 20, you say, well, what happened? They cut the song service short. Friends, there have been times I've heard singing in an old Baptist church that about 15 minutes of it was all anybody ought to have to listen to. <laughs> If the Lord's not there and people are not blessed to sing in the Spirit, why suffer through it? And then there's times of singing so good you could go on with it. And I'm sure some of you will concur that you've heard preaching that would have been a lot better if it had been about half as long. But you know, I talked to a young preacher the other day. A brother asked me to talk to him, give him some advice, and found out in the process that he was like a lot of young preachers that get the idea that the way he was going to prove he was a sure enough preacher was to take an hour, as though that was the old Baptist standard, that if you finally got where you could hold out for an hour, whether the congregation did or not, doesn't wasn't relevant, but just so the preacher could hold out for an hour, that, that meant he'd, he'd arrive. I said, brother, don't, don't try to say such a little bit about a whole lot. Just just pick out a, a little bit and, and focus on that and, and, and say a lot about that. Say enough about something that you can get a message across and make the point and sit down and get out of the way. Another little bit of advice I've given two or three preachers that asked recently that were having some difficulty in saying, well, the people just aren't receiving me. They're just not receiving what I'm preaching. I said, what are you preaching? They said, well... I've been burdened about the condition of the church, and I've been preaching a lot of duty sermons, and I've been preaching about how God's people ought to wake up, and I've been preaching about what all they ought to... I say, that's your problem. Before you can ever preach that, you've got to ring the gospel bell first, because they will not hear you. They'll not be satisfied with your gift to preach unless they can hear you preach that gospel, hear you preach the fundamentals of the faith. And then there'll come a time later on when you've grown and been out there on the firing line, and then you can tell somebody something, and they'll know you're not just up there delivering a lot of words. You've been out there in the heat of battle and know what it's about, you see. There comes a time and a place that it's a appropriate to deal with some issues that the young man can't do. But how easy it is to get into the ritual, the routine. Suppose we stopped right in the middle of the song service and said, let's just have a season of prayer and called on several different brethren to pray. I've seen that done some places, and I think that's wonderful that we don't have to just go through the same routine all the time. How easy to just get in the rut. How easy just to use the chant. Had a lady write to me the other day and said, I wish you could share this information with others about how I feel. She said, my husband is not an old Baptist, and I bring him to our meetings, but all of our preachers preach with such a chant, he can't understand them. He doesn't know what they say. She said, if our preachers would just preach so they could be understood. Oh, my friends, whether it's a chant in the style of delivery or whether it's the chant in our own customs by routine and ritual, you can 
be at ease in Zion in that kind of routine. A person can hear a particular style of preaching or style of delivering, hear a particular chant, and decide that brother really preaching in the Spirit and not understand the thing he's talking about. You see, can be at ease in Zion, but there be no message that's penetrated the heart and no action that's being implemented in the life. And then he further says in the last part of verse 6, they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. They are not grieved. These individuals spending all of their time lying upon beds of ivory, stretching themselves upon their couches, resting comfortably. They are at a feast. They're eating great portions, satisfied with that which is material, that which... Uh, meets their need from a from a natural point of view. They're 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 drinking wine in bowls, they're anointing themselves with the chief ointments. They're feeling great about themselves and feeling good about their condition and their circumstances and they're enjoying their prosperity, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. How many are in that state today? You say, well, what are you talking about, the affliction of Joseph? What about the affliction of God's people? You see, this was a dark day in Israel's history. Judgment was ready to come. God said he's going to carry them into captivity. He's going to suffer their enemy to carry them away because of their sin and their disobedience. But instead of being grieved about that matter, instead of humbling themselves and seeking God... They were at ease. No grief, no heavy burden, no tears shed, no crying out to God for His mercy. How many today are grieved for the affliction of Joseph? How many today are grieved when they see the conditions that prevail in the Lord's church? Jeremiah asked the question in the book of Lamentations chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Jeremiah lamented because he saw the desolation. He saw the trouble. He saw the darkness of the time. And he said, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Can you observe this scene and not be moved by it? Can you hear of little churches closing their doors and not be burdened? Can you see little churches reduced to three and four members and not be concerned? Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? I have generally considered myself to be an optimistic person, and yet I don't want to be a blind optimist. I don't want to be saying everything is wonderful when it's not, saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. When I look at the reality of the situation, I see a lot different picture among our people today than I did 30 years ago. I see a lot of places 
where the doors are already closed. And there are some that are close to it. I've shared myself from the pulpit some of the encouraging accounts of faithful souls who continued to pray when there was only two or three members left and would go each meeting time and ask that the Lord would send them another preacher. And the Lord answered that prayer and the churches were revived. And and I am inspired to know the faithfulness and diligence of those who will continue to earnestly seek the Lord in the matter. But when we seek churches in a state of decline, should we not be disturbed by it? He says, these were not afflicted. These, these were not in trouble. These were not mourning because of the affliction of Joseph. They were, they were not disturbed. I say, indeed, if we see ourselves in a state of decline, rather than being complacent about it, rather than ignoring the situation, it ought to bring us to our knees. It ought to bring us to a place of greater desire to seek God on a continual basis. Yes, these were not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. How is it with you? Are you grieved today about the many things that you see affecting the lives of multitudes, not just with respect to the church itself, but when you see how many young lives have been so devastated by drugs by the abuse of alcohol, by sexual involvement, by an attitude of rebellion against parents and against society in general, and it all results finally in an attitude of rebellion against God. Can you see these things and not be grieved and not be moved by it? Or somebody may say, well, I don't want to think about those things because I'll get depressed. I'm not here to try to bring a message that will cause you to be depressed. I hope before I finish tonight that I can point you to some things that will give you renewed encouragement to believe that you as an individual can fill an important role to see things turned around. But before they're ever turned around, we've got to face the problem. Before anything gets better, we've got to realize how bad it is. We've got to be humbled by it. These who are at ease in Zion were not grieved. They just went on with the same old chant. Repetition, same thing, day after day, humming themselves to sleep, using the instruments of music invented by David. Same old tune, pluck on the same old string. Just say, everything's all right. Everything's all right. You know, sad to say that the American people today have been lulled into a state where it seems that if something does not immediately and directly affect them as an individual, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And when people are in that frame of mind, they're very close to the place that freedom can be taken away, and they'll swap it for whatever makes them comfortable for the moment. We're living in very perilous, dangerous times. And yet how many people are grieved? How many people are humbled by it and seeking God that he may intervene? 
that he may bless us to be a help to these whose lives have been so devastated by sin and that we can preach the glorious gospel of God's grace, which is the only message of good news and cheer to those who are downtrodden and see themselves as guilty, vile, bankrupt sinners. And when it comes to the Lord's church itself, when we see the falling away, when we see sometimes how we come to meeting and we do just go through a formality and there's not the same degree of spirit and there's not the fervency and there's not the effect of the message when it's preached. I've heard some very, very able discourses preached over the last few years and I thought, my, if that sermon had been preached 30 years ago, there'd have been shouting all over the house. People would have shed tears everywhere. They'd have come out of their seats and threw their arms around the preacher to say how much we thank God for the message. And now the same thing can be preached and people will sit dry-eyed and never be moved by it and walk out to the back and begin to talk about the weather. Is there not reason for us to be grieved when we see the conditions that prevail in this time? And then you see one other point here. They put far away the day of judgment. Now, the Lord said, judgment's coming. The Lord said, captivity's out there in front of you. And these who are at ease in Zion put it way off in their minds. Oh, yeah, judgment may come someday, but it's not going to be tomorrow, so why worry about it now? It's a fact. We may face some difficult things down the road, but it's not bothering me today because I'm here on my ivory couch and I'm drinking this wine and I'm, I'm having all this ointment put on me and I, I feel good today, so I'm not going to be grieved over that situation. I'm not going to worry about it. He says, the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Where do we stand in face of such judgment? I'm not talking about putting God's people back under the slavish fear of law service. I know as far as the condemnation that was upon us, it was atoned for, it was attended to, it was removed by the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, and we stand in Him accepted in the Beloved. But I'm talking about the Lord dealing with His people here because of their rebellion, because of their sin, because of their complacency, because of their neglect. Indeed, judgment will come. Did He not speak to those churches when the letters were sent to the seven churches of Asia saying, except you come, except you repent, I will come and remove the candlestick? He said, I'll give you space to repent. He didn't say how long that was. And I think when a church becomes cold, careless, negligent, disobedient, the Lord gives it space to repent. It might be a month, it might be a year, it might be several years, but the time will come that the Lord removes the candlestick. And when the candlestick is gone, you can have the building, you can have the graveyard, you can have the sign out front, you can still have a little handful of people inside, but you haven't got the church if the candlestick is gone. You see, we stand before our Lord, and if, if He doesn't hold us up, we, we're going down. We, we, we must please Him. It doesn't matter what 
people think about us. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. But it matters in every respect as to what the Lord thinks about what we're doing and how we're doing it. As if, if, our, if our ways please Him, then he, He'll hold us up in spite of all opposition. These are some of the signs that are set forth here by this prophet describing the condition of those that are at ease in Zion. But what does that mean to you? See, it's very easy for us to read these things and we get the word picture that's painted here by the prophet and we say, well, really, that's not me. I'm I'm not on an ivory couch. I'm not drinking wine out of bowls. I'm not chanting to music of, of instrument like uh, uh, musical instruments like David did. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not uh, really being described in this passage. It's just not for me. Let's see if we can rephrase some of this and bring it down to where we are ourselves and see if we are indeed here described. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to be at ease in Zion? I believe one of the indications is an unwillingness to really examine ourselves and pray for the enabling grace of the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and try our ways and see what is within us. You see, these people that were at ease in Zion didn't want to take a clear look at themselves. They didn't want to hear what the prophet was talking about. They didn't want their descri- the, 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 the description of their condition set before them. They didn't want any self-examination. And how many people are in that state today? They don't want to search themselves. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? How many times I hear somebody say, Well, I, 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 know, I know what my heart's like. I, I, I know what I feel down inside. Here, here's the way I look at it. Here's the way I think about it. Some people go on to say, well, if not deceived about it, here's, here's, here's the way it is with me. Well, the heart is deceitful above all things. We, we can feel like we've searched everything out and we've got it in place and we've examined ourselves and we know what our motives are. We may not know it at all. The psalmist said, search me, try me, make me to know what's within me. And I'll tell you, when the Lord begins to shine His searchlight down into the deep recesses of our heart, we can see a lot of things we didn't know were there. Have you ever had the experience of feeling like, I've gotten all the bitterness rooted out of my heart that ever was there? Here's somebody preach on that and say, boy, I'm glad he's preached on that because all these people around me need it. I'm not talking to me because I don't have any bitterness. And then somebody you hadn't seen for a while, you'd kind of forgotten about that little part of bitterness you'd hidden way down there in the depths of your heart. Somebody you hadn't seen for a while, you see them again. Whoops! Up comes the bitterness. Think, yeah, I remember about how many things I don't like about this person and uh, how I feel about them. Maybe go up to town and see somebody coming down the street on the other side, cross over the other way, and you don't want to speak to them. No, I don't have any bitterness. Just some people I don't speak to, that's all. Say, no, I'm not bitter. There's just some people I don't like. 
talked last night about love. How, how are we going to have that kind of love that's the badge of discipleship if there's people we don't like and we haven't forgiven and we won't, we won't deal with those issues? We don't want to see that. We don't want to see that. So, oh, I'm, I'm not guilty of covetousness. That's, that's sounds like a, that's a bad word, covetous. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, no, sir, not me. I, I, I'm not covetous. And then the Lord begins to shine the searchlight down in there and shows you some of your greed and your selfishness and how you're constantly thinking about what's yours and what you want to get and for yourself. And you see somebody else get something and you don't have one and the old monster envy begins to turn around inside of you and say, what is that? Why, that fellow's not even as smart as I am. How'd he make all that money and I can't? Those, those, those people aren't as good as I am. They don't, they don't go to church all the time. And look how they're prospering. And I'm just barely getting by. See, and greed and envy and covetousness begins to manifest itself. Being at ease in Zion means that we don't want any self-examination. We don't want any searching deep within. Being at ease in Zion means that when you hear the message preached, when the gospel is set forth, when the practical aspects of the message of God's Word is proclaimed, you always find some grounds to pass it on to somebody else. This just doesn't apply to me. This just isn't my case. This is just not my circumstances at all. That's, that's the attitude that I think is displayed here. At ease, passing it on, not doing anything about it, not laying it to heart, or maybe going up and shaking the preacher's hand and saying, Brother, I'm glad you preached that. That's evident the truth. And then walk out of the house, forget it, and do absolutely nothing about it. <clears throat> or maybe sometimes to say, Well, it would just be wonderful if everybody did that, meaning... You can't expect it, you know. That's that's unrealistic. Nobody's going to do that. It'd be nice. In other words, preacher, you preached a nice little heavenly message up here, but it's of no earthly use at all because we're just not going to live that way. That's it. You see, we're not laying it to heart. We're at ease in Zion. Not concerned. Not concerned about the evils of our time. Not concerned about the afflictions of those that are heavy laden and burdened in this day, not concerned about the coldness of our own heart and the coldness that sometimes exists in the fellowship of saints. And then these individuals were described as putting off the day of judgment and how true it is in our own experience that we have a tendency to, to be procrastinators. We tend to put things off. We, we say, oh, I, yes, even if I agree with what the preacher said, I know what he said is so, and I know I need to do something about it, and I will do it sometime. i got a few things to straighten out first, and then I'll, I'll address that issue. But sometimes it never gets here. We just keep putting it off. We put off, put off, put off. 
Amos chapter 8, verse 11 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Do we appreciate the word of the Lord when we hear it? Do we appreciate the privilege of hearing the truth proclaimed? What a desolate time is here described when he says the days come that I'll send a famine. It's not going to be the famine of bread. You'll still have bread to put on the table and water to drink, but you're going to have a famine of the hearing of the words of the Lord, of hearing His truth. And then there are people, when they hear these things, that respond very much like the people did to the ministry of Amos here, and they just make it clear there's some things they, they just plain old don't want to hear about, and we just wish the preacher would shut up about it and go on to something else. Amos chapter 5, verse 10 says, They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. The man that rebukes, they say, We don't want to hear him. Well, look here, we're comfortable. We're on our ivory couches. We've got plenty to eat. We're eating the calves out of the stall. We're drinking wine out of bowls. We're hearing beautiful music. We're comfortable. Don't stand there at the gate and rebuke us. Don't tell us to wake up. Don't try to challenge us to duty. Don't tell us about how things used to be or how they might be or how things could be better. No, we're just satisfied where they are. That's the complacent spirit at ease in Zion. You see, Amos was, was not a popular man by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, it says over here in the seventh chapter of this same book and verse 12, also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, Go. You see, Amos was, was not a popular man by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, it says over here in the seventh chapter of this same book and verse 12, also Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go flee thee away into the land of Judah and there eat bread and prophesy there. In other words, preacher, get out of town. We've had it with you. You're disturbing our peace of mind. You're trying to disturb our happy rest here. We're at ease, and we don't want it any other way. So go somewhere else. Prophesy not again anymore at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. In other words, we've already got the religion we want here. This is the king's chapel, and we don't want any of God's messages preached here because it's a disturbing element here. We, we, we've got everything arranged just how we want it, so you go on somewhere else. How many times do you suppose God's people have that kind of a spirit and attitude today? Every once in a while, somebody's bold enough to say just about what they did to Amos here. A lot of people wouldn't come right out and say it, but they think it anyway. And a lot of people try to add a little credence to what they feel by just not coming. They say, I can cure that. If he wants to stand up there and rebuke at the gate, he can rebuke at the gate all night, but I don't have to be that listen to it. I'd just soon stay home and watch television as I would go hear a man try to talk to me about my sins and my faults and my failings and about how I ought to do better. 
That man say that to me not too terribly long ago. He said, Preacher, he said, I, I, I don't know what's gotten into you that you're spending so much time preaching about things that we ought to do, but he says, I'll tell you frankly, I don't care to listen to it. He says, I go to work and somebody tells me all day long what I'm supposed to do. I come home at night and my wife tells me all evening what I'm supposed to do. And he said, I don't want to come to church on Sunday and hear you get up and tell me what to do. He said, if you can't spend your time telling me what's been done for me, I'm not coming. Now, there's not very many that will come out and tell it like that, but a lot of them live it that way. They give evidence that that's their attitude because they just don't show up. Now, you're not going to tell me. We're living in an attitude, a, a, a day when there's a tremendous attitude of independence. You know, I'm my own man. I'm going to do things my own way. and Nobody's going to tell me anything. And that rebellious spirit ultimately leads to destruction. The people resisted the message of this prophet. They didn't want to hear him. They hardened their hearts against the message. Amos was, was, was not one that really just fit in, you see. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't one that was brought up and, and, and trained and prepared to, to be one of the messengers in the king's chapel. Uh, he was a farm boy. He was a little rough around the edges. And the Lord called him to bring the message. And, and the people really didn't care for how he looked, didn't care for how he sounded, and certainly didn't care for what he had to say. I was in a meeting a while back where Dr. Warren Wearsby of the Back to the Bible broadcast was speaking to an audience of religious broadcasters, and a lot of the people there were managers and owners of radio stations, and he painted a little word picture of the prophet Amos, and he said, I'll tell you station managers and you station owners here today one thing. He said, you talk about having Christian radio. He said, if the prophet Amos came up and knocked on your door and wanted to buy time, there's not a man in the house would have sold him a minute. He said, you wouldn't have had him at all. And I thought how, how true that is. You know, we can go back here and read these old prophets and hear what they had to say and say, yeah, that was, that was nice back then, but then it comes out and we don't want to hear it anymore than they did. We don't, want to, we don't want to hear a warning. We don't want to hear that the day of judgment may be at hand as far as the Lord even judging His people. We, we want to put far away the evil day. But I said a moment ago, it's not my purpose in bringing this message to cause you to be depressed and to feel like there's no hope. I would pray that the Lord might use it to bring us more to a place of concern and to weep for the affliction of Joseph, to weep for the declining state of Zion. But what can we do? What can we do? What is the remedy to this state of being at ease in Zion? We need to hear the word of the Lord. We need to hear not just what may suit us, not just what we might be accustomed to hearing, but we need to hear whatever is the message in this entire book. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. As much as I love Ephesians 1 and Romans 8, I know there's more in the book besides that. I know that there are things that God's people need every day to bring them to a closer walk with God and to manifest that 
fruit of the Spirit and to display that light in this darkened age in which we live. There needs to be a greater attention to hearing His Word, lest we come to that time when there is a famine of the hearing of the Word of the Lord. And then we need to heed the afflictions that God sometimes sends on us to get our attention. The Lord sometimes deals with us to awaken us to our state, and we have a tendency to ignore even that. Chapter 3 of the book of Amos says in verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, there might have been a tendency when the Lord said, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Say, Yes, well, aren't we special because the Lord has known us, marked us out, singled us, blessed us like no other people on earth. But what did He say? Because I've known you above all the families of the earth, I'm going to continue to bless you in double measure. He says, No, because I've blessed you and enlightened you and done for you what I didn't do for anybody else, I'm going to punish you for your iniquities. I'm going to deal with you. Because whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. That's the evidence of our sonship. And oh, how we need to be sensitive to the chastening rod when the Lord deals with us in this way. He says in chapter 4 of the same prophecy, verse 6, And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread in all your places. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. The Lord said, I'm already afflicting you. I'm already dealing with you. I've given you cleanness of teeth. There's already a famine. But you haven't uh, humbled yourselves. You haven't returned unto me. And also I've withholden the rain from you. And there were yet three months to the harvest. And I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water. But they were not satisfied. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. The Lord said there's been a drought, and I sovereignly caused it to rain upon one city and not rain upon another. And finally two or three little cities came together, and even together there wasn't a sufficiency. And yet, after all of this, you've not returned. Has the Lord spoken to you in affliction? I'm not saying that every sickness and every pain and every heartache is chastisement. But I am saying the Lord many times speaks to us in that manner. And our deepest concern should be as our afflictions come, Lord, help me to hear what you have to say. Help me to learn the lesson that you have for me to learn. Help me to be sensitive to it. I don't want to be one of these stubborn, rebellious kids that looks like he just never learns. And the Lord have to keep putting on the rod over and over again to get the message across. It yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. But many a little child of God is not readily exercised, is not quickly submissive, not alert to the things that the Lord is saying. Look quickly at chapter 5, verse 3. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall leave an hundred. Now look at this. This is one of the judgments. This is one of the afflictions. 
See, I'm not, I'm not suggesting to you tonight that numerical strength is the only test of faithfulness in the Lord's church, or the only test of his presence. He can indeed bless when there are but a few. But I want to tell you that when there is a constant decline, it should be an alarm for us to address the issue and try to discover what is the problem. What is the problem? The Lord said, The city went out by a thousand and shall leave an hundred. Started out big, wound up small, and went out by an hundred and shall leave ten to the house of Israel. A drastic reduction. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. There's our solution. Seek ye me, and ye shall live. There is yet hope. Verse 8 says, Seek him that maketh the seven stars of Orion and turneth the shadow of death into the morning. There's hope. He turns the shadow of death into morning. We look all around us today and we are in the shadow of death. When we see the breakdown of the moral fiber in this country, when we see the many evils that are corrupting lives by multitudes, homes, marriages breaking apart, children's lives being disrupted in so many ways, we see the lack of interest and zeal and coldness in the Lord's church, we are in the shadow of death. But even so, he says, we are to turn to the one who maketh the shadow of death into the morning and maketh the day dark with night that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. God is able yet to turn the matter around. Not without a commitment on our part. God certainly calls upon us to respond in faithfulness and obedience and doing the things that he's bidden us to do. But you see, there is hope. So many times we get focused in on the problems and begin to feel burdened about our own shortcomings and our own failings and disturbed about the failings and shortcomings of others. And we can feel like it's all darkness, it's all gloom, it's all downhill. There is no hope. There is hope. Because God is the God of hope. Things can be better today. Things can be better in your life. Things can be better in the life of your loved ones. Things can be better in the church. They can be better in this church. They can be better in the kingdom of God as a whole. Because as we humble ourselves and seek His face by His wonderful power, by His wonderful blessings, Things can be turned around. And you know, the Lord delights to do that which is impossible with man anyway. We can look at a situation and say, well, it's just totally hopeless. Just no way, no, no possibility that this situation could ever be revived. And that's right where the Lord is pleased to work. So when it's done, everybody knows He did it. It wasn't because somebody was so smart or somebody was so committed or somebody was, was, was so ingenious that they came up with, with some new concept or somebody was so dedicated. No, it's because of God's wonderful grace and mercy that He has showered down upon us and, and revived us and blessed us to the honor of His name. Are you at ease in Zion? No doubt Satan would seek to delude us and deceive us many times and bring us to that state of complacency without even realizing it. It's easy to get there when you've, when you've tried and you've suffered setback. There may have been times you've heard a preacher preach a sermon and you said, he stepped all over my toes and this time I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to go out and do better this next week. 
And before the week was over, you had stumbled and failed again. And you said, well, I guess that's just the way I am. That's the way it's going to be. I've always been this way. It's not going to be any better. So you didn't try anymore. And so you are at ease in Zion just because it doesn't seem like your efforts meant anything anyway. That can easily happen in the ministry. Or we can get to the place we preach and preach and preach and sometimes feel like we're preaching to a brick wall and nobody hears and nobody responds and nobody does anything about it. Finally get to the place, well, I'll just go up there and deliver a little sermon and nobody wants to hear anything anyway. Just fill my time. Just, just wait for it all finally go downhill. That's not the spirit that's pleasing to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are to be a zealous people, alive, alert, awake, and we have reason to be zealous when we see the wonders of His love, the marvels of His grace, what He's done for us, and how wonderfully He's blessed us in spite of ourselves. Suppose all the blessings we had in our life and all the blessings we had in the church tonight were the ones that we had adequately worked for and deserved. Where would we be? think we're in trouble now. We'd sure enough be in bad shape, wouldn't we? It's by God's grace that we have what we have. But there can be even greater and happier times of spiritual liveliness in His kingdom. Let us awaken from our slumber and seek the face of our God who can turn the shadow of death into the brightness of day for the honor of His name.